Starting a short five-week series this morning, I'm calling God's will for your life is, and I can tell you right now, absolutely, I know what God's will for your life is. I do. No exaggeration. Now, I don't know who you're supposed to marry. I don't know what car you're supposed to buy. I don't know where you're supposed to go to, go to college. There's a whole bunch of things I don't know. But there are some things I can tell you absolutely I know what God's will for your life is. And we'll take these one at a time. This morning's going to be regeneration. Week two is transformation, fruitfulness, suffering. Everyone will be living in great anticipation of that week. Week four, suffering. God's will for your life is suffering. And the last is His glory. But that's what I want to look at. These are obviously broad brushstroke teachings, right? These are big topics. We'll spend not very much time each week, but they're important. They're really important. This morning's message is supremely important. And let me pray before we jump in. Lord God, there can be no greater thing for us than to see Your Son Jesus, to come to grips with who He is and what He at least potentially means for us. And Father, would You exalt Your Son Jesus as we look at the Scriptures this morning and see again our great desperate need for Him and Your great provision in Him for us. In His name, Amen. You know, while I'm glad that we're all here, the truth is, and I say this without exaggeration, there's a danger in coming to church. There's a danger in coming to church and it's related to this thing of deception. You know, <clears throat> all of us... <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> I'm going to be phlegmy this morning. All of us, you know, are idolaters by birth. And that means that we put something besides God as the ultimate God for us to worship. And usually that's us. So we go around in life and we need other people to bow down and worship us in one way or another. And at least it's this way. Uh, if you affirm me, if I can impress you in some way that you affirm me, then I feel okay about myself and, and I'm good to go. And so there's a huge temptation to deceive each other when we come to church that we have become something we're not, that we are someone that we are not. And you know how that goes. So we come in on Sunday morning, maybe we had a fight on the way to church, our kids are misbehaving, we're struggling with sin in one area or another, but we get here on Sunday morning and someone says, how are you doing? And we do this. Fine, how about you? We put on our happy face. And maybe I'm hoping I can impress someone else to affirm me and I'll feel okay about myself. And so coming to church, there, there's a temptation to deceive, to be deceivers towards others, to pretend we're someone or something that we're not. I'm concerned about that, and that's a teaching for another day. But there's a worse temptation to deception, and this is my primary concern this morning, <clears throat> and it's this. You can come to church for all kinds of reasons. And you can sit here week after week and frankly year after year and you can deceive yourself that you're saved and you're not. And this plays all kinds of different ways, but you can come in. I go to church. I was raised in church. My parents are Christian. I'm with the good guys. I know where God wants me on Sunday morning. You can come in here week after week, month after month, year after year and deceive yourself that you're saved and going to heaven when you are not. And guys, in a group this big, it's like anything else we talk about. You talk about any sin. Group this big, they're present. And I just tell you, 
that in a group this size this morning, it's almost certain that some of us are sitting here this morning, we are self-deceived. We think we're saved and we're going to heaven, and we're not at this time. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Jesus had a nighttime conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. He was a leader in Israel. And Jesus told him, Nick, if you're not born again, if you're not regenerated, if you don't have a new spiritual rebirth, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. You won't be in it. You won't see it. Matthew 7 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount tells what is to me the most terrifying story in all the Bible. Jesus had been talking about false prophets and false teachers, and He told them, He said, you'll know them by their fruit. Look at the fruit that's produced in their life. And within that context, He says this, not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of My Father who's in heaven will enter. Many will say to Me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name, in Your name cast out demons, in Your name perform many miracles, You notice they're pointing to all the things they have done. They're pointing to themselves as the mechanism for their salvation. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now these guys are on the cusp of eternity. And they're getting ready to walk into Jesus' kingdom and have the pat on the back and the warm reception home. And these are the most terrifying words I think anyone will ever hear in time or eternity. I think I'm going to be welcomed into God's heavenly kingdom. It's going to be great from here out. And Jesus says to me, depart. I never knew you. They were self-deceived. And there's a group of people in every generation. This is them. I think I'm good with God. And Jesus says, no, you're not. I never knew you. Now please notice too, Jesus doesn't say, I used to know you and now I don't. Jesus says, I have never known you. You have never belonged to me. You've never been mine. You never experienced the new birth John 3 talks about. You're not mine. Now you've got to understand, he's speaking this to the Jews. They're religious. They're more religious than we are. They do religion better than you and I do religion. They're going to synagogue on the Sabbath, right? They're worshiping in the temple. They've cleaned up their lives. They're living by and large according to the law. They're supposed to. So they think, hey, God's okay, God's in heaven, I'm here on earth, we're good. I've cleaned up my life, I'm doing the right things, etc. We might say, I go to church, you know, I've, I've quit one sin or I've quit another, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. We'd be in the same boat. That testimony has absolutely nothing to do with conversion, with regeneration, with a new birth that admits us into God's heaven, here and now and eternal life. So... That's who I'm talking to this morning. People who, and I hope you're not offended, but I'm convinced people here think they're going to heaven right now and they're not. Now to the rest of you, and I think most of you have heard the gospel and you've believed, and so this can just be a refresher course this morning, okay? Because the truth always applies and it's no less glorious after we become saved than it is before. And Matthew 22, here's another brief story, but remember the story? The king's son is going to get married. It's a big deal. Everyone's invited. The king wants to honor his son. Everyone's going to be part of the celebration. The day comes and all these people aren't showing up. And so the king goes out time after time and he invites more and more people into this wedding feast. 
And that's a good thing. And you and I, were invited to a wedding feast, just like that story. And as the king goes through the wedding hall, he sees this guy and he does not have the wedding garments on. This sounds strange to us, but everyone there knew this guy's supposed to be dressed appropriately for this event. And he's not. And so the king goes up to him and says, by the way, what are you doing here dressed like this? It's disrespectful to the king. It's disrespectful to his son, to everyone else there. What are you doing? And it says he's cast out into outer darkness. Now, theologically, we'd say the garments that he missed were the the garments of Christ's own righteousness that God means to clothe us in. You and I, like they, were invited to a wedding feast. But you've got to have the right garment. And we can't make it and we can't produce it. It's Christ's very righteousness. That's what gets us in. Nothing short of that. This is all to say there's an invitation, isn't there? But you have to have the right clothing on this is the problem for us and in our honest moments we know this God's given us a conscience and we know we do things we should not do we don't do things we should do in thought word and deed in omission and commission we sin we're not who we should be and that's a problem because God's holy and we're not Most of the people that think they're going to go to heaven when they won't think that God is like them. God will admit me to heaven because He's like me. He recognizes my strong suits. He likes me as I am. But but we forget, we negate the fact that God is holy. God cannot tolerate sin. It's not even an option. God's holy and we're not. And our conscience is there to tell us God's holy. And we're not. In our honest moments, we know that. Relationally, that puts a big roadblock between us and God. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. If you've not been regenerated through trust, faith in the Gospel, we are spiritually dead to God. Physically, we're alive. We draw breath. We live life on the earth. But spiritually, there's no union with God who in Himself is life. Relationally, we're cut off from life. But also, judicially, we continue to live under God's judgment. Paul talks about this in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, he says. Revelation 20 is the picture of the great white throne judgment in which all the dead are brought up before Jesus' throne. Their name's not in the book of life. They're not part of His kingdom. And he ushers them into what's called the second death, the lake of fire. This is terrifying stuff, by the way. Absolutely terrifying. But that's that's the position you and I occupy before regeneration, before a holy, just, righteous God. We're under His judgment. That's our position. That's, That's why there's the necessity for regeneration, for this spiritual rebirth. Now... Faced with the awful reality that apart from Christ, you and I suffer eternal condemnation righteously, we really need this thing called regeneration or rebirth, or we really need to be born again. And the good news is that I can tell you absolutely, no question, I can tell you that God's will for your life is regeneration. God's will for your life is redemption and salvation. Just stick with me for just a minute. Some of you don't believe me right now. 
But I can tell you, this is God's will. 1 Timothy 1.15 Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Has there been anyone ever who's walked the earth that's not a sinner? Ever? So Jesus came to this earth to save sinners. So how many of us would that include? Not feeling you. Romans 3 says, how many are righteous? Well, there's none righteous. No, not one. Wow, we're all sinners. Christ came into this world to save sinners. That would be all of us. You go a little further in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul talking about God our Savior, who desires, He wills, He wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. How many people does God want to be saved? All. Men there is not male specific. That's all of us. God wants all of us to be saved. God's will is your salvation. I can tell you. I know what God's will for your life is. To be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 Pete was queried, Hey Peter, Jesus said He'd come back, but it's been a while and He's not coming back. What's the deal? Did God forget His promise? And Peter says, well, no. He's not being slow about this. But this is the deal. 2 Peter 3.9 God is being patient. Why is God being patient? Well, because He doesn't wish. That word means He doesn't will, purpose, or desire that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And in repenting life. All should reach repentance. God's will for your life is regeneration. It's repentance and faith and salvation. Luke 19.10, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. How many of us are lost spiritually? Every one of us. If you're lost, Jesus came to find you and take you home. God's will for your life is regeneration. It's rebirth. It's spiritual renewal. I can tell you that absolutely. Whatever state of life you're in, God's will for your life is regeneration. Now, will everyone... God's will is regeneration, Mike. Will God's will happen? Will everyone who's walked on this planet be saved? No. There would be no Revelation 20 and Great White Throne if everyone on the earth is saved, would there? So then you say, well, Mike, you've got a problem, right? Theologically, God wants... Everyone to be saved. God's will for my life is salvation. But not everyone is saved. So what do we do with that? We just The only reason I'm bringing this up briefly is just to say, that's true. I recognize that. So God has, typically, theologically, we say something like this. God's moral will is for all of us to be saved. And these verses speak to that. But God also has what we call a permissive will. He allows things that aren't necessarily His primary desire. And in God's permissive will, not all of us will be saved. Even though I say God's will for your life is salvation, it's regeneration, it's redemption, and all that goes with it, not all of us will be saved indeed. Now let me tell you some of the things that accompany salvation, the fruits of regeneration. And when we go over these, this is what I want you to do. I just want you to say, is that true of me? Is that true of me? Has this been my experience? 
the first fruit of regeneration is the forgiveness of our sins. Our sins would exact a terrible penalty. But Jesus has borne the penalty in His death on the cross so that we don't need to bear them. So when we are regenerate, when we're born again, we're forgiven. We have the forgiveness of our sins. And guys, listen, one of the reasons why we have substance abuse, abuse sex, anything that you think that we abuse, we have a conscience that tells us we're doing wrong. And even though we can dull that conscience over time, it's still telling us, you're out of line. You're doing wrong and you know it. And one of the things we turn to for relief from that conscience God has given us to turn us to Him is we just abuse one thing or another. We just want to overwhelm that sense that I'm not right. God's will is better than that. God says, I'll take your guilt and I'll move it all away. I'll take every guilty thought you've had. I'll take all that weight that you live under. You don't need to suppress it. You just bring it to me. I'll take it all away. The forgiveness of our sins... Matthew 26:28 Jesus was instituting the last supper there the last night with his disciples he said as he poured the wine into the cup this is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins Jesus says that wine represented his blood that blood would be the covering that would cover over remove if you will from God's vision our sins the forgiveness of sins Luke 24:27 Jesus said repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And last Acts 26:18 by the way I'm not covering all the verses uh, on your study sheet you can look those up later. Uh, God's commission to Paul to open their eyes so that they can turn from darkness to light from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. This is the thing. Have you experienced peace with God because you know your sins have been covered? Romans 5.1 We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul continues his theology. We have peace with God. Have you ever had the sense that my conscience is cleared and I'm free from this weight of my own sin? In the hymn, It is well with my soul, one of the stanzas reads this way, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but in whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Have you had that experience, that knowledge that my sins have been forgiven? I don't bear them anymore. If you haven't had the knowledge that your sins are forgiven, ask yourself, have I actually ever repented and trusted myself to Christ? When you're regenerate, you by definition get a new nature. You know why sinners sin? Do you know why sinners sin? It's all they can do. Do you know that a sinner doesn't do one redemptive thing in their lifetime before God? Because everything we do is tainted by our sinfulness. We sin because we're sinners. But guess what? When you're regenerate, you are given a brand new spiritual life. It didn't exist before regeneration. 
you have a new life in you that is Christ's DNA. You remember we talked in the series we went through before, if Adam is the only father you know, physically our patronage goes back to Adam, we're in trouble. Because his DNA, that's all we've got. Our life goes back to Adam. But if we have a rebirth, Jesus becomes our spiritual progenitor. We share his DNA. We get his life. And guess what? Jesus wants all the right things. Jesus delights to glorify the Father. The things Jesus loves, those are the same things that your new nature loves and craves. You know, before I was saved, when I was a really miserable, not a happy pagan, a miserable pagan, uh, I didn't know anything about this. And I, and I got saved and I started wanting to read my Bible. Peter says the Bible to a new Christian, it's like milk to a baby. I crave the Scriptures because I've got a new nature. It wants the truth. By definition, when you are regenerate, when you're born again, you have a new nature. It's Christ's own nature. By the way, this is one of the reasons why um, we'll get to eternal life in a minute. Uh, Arminianism, a theology that says you can get saved and then lost, is, sorry, is ridiculous. This is the thing. If you have a new nature after Christ's own, that life never ends. It can't. We'll talk about eternity here in a minute, but you've got a life inside you that didn't exist before. You are someone now that you weren't before. Paul says in Romans 7, he says it's the inner man. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says it's a new creation. All things have become new. Galatians 6.15, it's a new creation. When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, that is the fruit of the character of Christ's life in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, etc. So ask yourself this. Has there ever been a point in my life in which I realize I want what the Bible's talking about? I crave the truth of the Word. Or I feel a lack when I'm not in the fellowship of the saints and I don't have that fellowship. When you're regenerate, there's a new nature and it craves the right things. You can read about this in 1 John. Anyone with his spirit doesn't murder, they can't. That new nature inside of us cannot sin. That's why the Christian, by the way, has a, has a level of turmoil that the unsaved do not. We've got a dogfight inside. We've got an old sinful nature that wants nothing more than to sin. That's all it can do. That's all it can want. But now that's side by side with a new nature. Jesus' own New life that wants what God wants. And that's why there's some turmoil inside. So, when you look at your life, can you say, I realize I want at least some of the things I see in the Scripture that God wants for me. Do I have that sense that I crave the things God wants? I have a new nature reflecting Christ's own desires. The third thing is the reception of the Holy Spirit. When you're regenerated, when you get this new birth, you get, as a Christian, in the time we live in, you get the Holy Spirit. This isn't, this isn't about second blessings or third blessings. Paul says in Romans 8, if you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. Okay? This isn't dispensationalism. It's not uh, charismatic anything. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. Romans 8. So when you're regenerate, you get the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus said in John 7, He's like a well of water that springs up inside you. He's the life you feel inside you. That's the Holy Spirit. 
In Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached the Gospel to the Jewish nation, remember they're convicted. They believe. And they get the Spirit. And Peter said, that promise, the Holy Spirit in you, that's for you. And it's for your children. It's for their children. It's for as many as the Lord our God shall call to Himself. When you get the Holy Spirit, the Spirit does in us and for us what we cannot for ourselves. So ask yourself this, have you felt the convicting influence of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit, Jesus said He would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Do you sometimes feel when you read your Bible, or when someone's preaching the Gospel here, or on the radio, or on TV, do you get this prick that that's me, like I did all last week? Idolater, proud, lust, sin, envy... Me, 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 me. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us that conviction. How about this too? The Holy Spirit is the presence of God in us that opens the eyes of our heart. So, have you ever been reading your Bible? Or again, listening to the Scriptures proclaimed? And it's like the light goes on and you say, I see something I never saw before. I get something that I didn't comprehend or understand before. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in us is the one illuminating the truth of the Scriptures, opening the eyes of our heart to see the truth. That's the Spirit. So ask yourself, do you have that as an experience, and God willing, routinely, where you feel convicted and you know God's pointing out a sin in my life? Or you have that moment where you realize, I, I get it now, I see that truth, if you haven't seen, experienced the work of the Spirit in you, ask yourself, do I have the Spirit? Have I trusted Christ? Paul says in Romans 8.14, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. These are the children of God. If you're God's child, you have His Spirit. The last one that I'll mention here is eternal life. Uh, most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3.16, God so loved the world. Gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish. That's good. Instead of perishing, dying spiritually, He would have eternal life. <clears throat> this means life to the ages. Life that never ends. We get eternal life. John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. John 10, one of my favorite passages, Jesus says, hey, I am the Good Shepherd. I call my sheep. They know me and they follow me. And guess what I give them? I give them eternal life. Now friends, if you can forfeit salvation, if you can forfeit life, how long does your life end? How long does it last? It's not eternal, is it? If you get eternal life, it's life to the age. You cannot lose it. It's forever. It's eternal. We were walking in London several years ago when we went to uh, collect Adrian from school, and we're downtown, we're going to see, I'll forget, but it's the big cathedral where all the poets and the famous Brits are buried, and we're looking forward to it, and walking down the public sidewalk, there is a uh, African-American sister by herself in front of a, uh, I think it's Westminster Chapel, and she's passing out gospel tracts, and I'm thinking, I'm a tourist, i got things to do. And I'm seeing her, and I'm, I'm blessed. God bless you, as I'm headed down. But she calls me. Sir, she says to me, you know. 
If you died today, do you know where you'd go? And I'm like, man, you're bold. Well done, you know. So I went up to her and I said, well, yeah, I'd go to heaven. And she is semi-shocked. And I'm not sure why. She must not have caught many Christians that morning. I said, yeah, I'm going to heaven. She's like, well, why? I said, because I know who Christ is. And I know what He's done. He is mine and I'm His. He can't get rid of me. It doesn't matter what I do. Yeah, I'm going to heaven. Do you know, and this is a big point, by the way. Forget your theology. Forget the background. Forget Arminianism or Calvinism or anything else. Do you know that you have eternal life? Listen, every Christian is meant to know they have eternal life. If you tell me you don't know where you're going when you die, I have severe doubts that you're a Christian. If you don't know, the Spirit testifies to us that we are Christ's. The Word of God says that we have eternal life, life to the ages. If you can't trust an omnipotent God who can keep His Word, a God who cannot lie based on the Scripture of truth, based on Jesus' death for you and resurrection, what's your hope of heaven? What's your hope of heaven? What keeps you from knowing you have eternal life? If you sit here this morning and you say, I don't know that I'm going to heaven, then I would say, be very careful. Because that's a big deal. We should know that we have eternal life. It's part of our inheritance, if you will. Do you know you have eternal life? If someone asks you, what she asked me, if you died today, where would you go? If your answer isn't something along the lines of Jesus paid for my sins, I've trusted in Jesus Christ. If it has anything to do with went to church, read my Bible, cleaned up my act, whatever, I have no hope for your salvation. Zero, none, nada, nil. That won't get you there. And, and we'll get there here briefly. So how, how does this regeneration come about? We're emphasizing the man side of this salvation equation this morning, but there's first and primarily there's a God side. Listen, anytime anyone is regenerate, that that spark of new spiritual life occurs within them, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. You and I can't get there. It's the Spirit of God that comes along and enables faith and brings about this spiritual rebirth. The Holy Spirit is present to do this. That's part of what He does in the earth. And no one who's ever been saved has done so apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's there. The Holy Spirit's bringing that to pass. The Holy Spirit's that doctor delivering that new birth, that new baby. The Holy Spirit's there. But on our side, there's a component too, isn't there? And that's what I want to talk about here. On our side, Romans 3, Paul says, and this is sort of courtroom language, and justification means that God holds no sin against you. Justification means you stand righteous before a holy, righteous God. You're okay. You're in. If you're justified before God, you're in. Paul there says, being justified is a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.28, Paul says, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Galatians 2.16, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith, in Christ Jesus. You get the picture? 
Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So how does regeneration come up upon us? We hear the truth of the Gospel. The Holy Spirit's at work. And we believe. We get the message that we're sinful. And God's holy. And that's a problem. We're separated from Him. But in Christ, that infinite gap between heaven and earth has been bridged. Jesus is the ladder, if you remember, that connects heaven and earth. And we accept. That's all we do. Faith is just our arms are open. And we receive. We accept the gift of salvation. That's on our side. We believe. We trust. We trust Jesus. That's our end. That's what it looks like on our end for regeneration. Has there ever been a moment in your life? And I understand for some kids especially, or for some of us, there may not be a singular moment in which you know at that point I trusted, I believed. I heard the Gospel and I I trusted, I got it. But can you say, I know that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And if someone asks me, that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. Jesus is it, not me. Is that your story? Let me close with a couple of warnings. And again, this is, what, this is my concern for us this morning. Any of the rest of the teachings in this series are meaningless if this isn't true of you this morning. The warnings go this way. Um, children, if you are a minor, if you still live at home with your parents, they're taking you to church. And you're, God willing, you're hearing the, the Bible at home. And you know, at one and the same time, you occupy a very blessed place, a very privileged position, if that's true of you. But I'd say you also occupy potentially a very dangerous position too. And it's for this reason. You know there's a temptation if you grow up going to church with your parents, that you'll think, I'm a Christian because I go to church with my parents. And there's a temptation to think, I've been to Sunday school, I know the stories, I'm a Christian. Doesn't work that way. Rebirth has nothing to do with, John 1 says, with blood, bloodlines, physical birth, or the will of man. It's a work of God in our hearts. It's not connected in that way to our physical parents. And guys, our church, we're just like everyone else. You know, we're all tempted to think we're unique. That's just our pride. We're all the same. And so in this church, like every other church around the country, you know what you'll see, at least sometimes, you'll see kids grow up in church when they're at home with their parents and their parents require it. And when they get out from home... They go away to college or whatever. They chuck it. That's what I did. They chuck it. And then I say, okay, well, there's one of two things going on. They're saved, but they're like the prodigal in Luke's Gospel. And they're saying, "Ah, you know, I sort of know about this Christian thing. I know about my spiritual father, but I want to go see if the world doesn't have something better to offer than Dad's giving me. And so they take off. And they're a prodigal. And you know there's others that they, they take off because they're not saved. They never have been saved. And it doesn't matter that they grew up going to Lion and Lamb Church. It doesn't matter that they grew up in a Christian family. None of that saves them. Now when you hear me say this, please understand. God puts you and me in the lives of prodigals and unrepentant for a reason. And I'm not writing anybody off. Okay? And you shouldn't either. We shouldn't. We should pray. We had a brother that spoke at this conference this last week. 
he is he's an outstanding Bible teacher. And we had a blast listening to him. And he was funny and convicting, and he's one of the guys that beat me up. And he's a good brother. And he's got two children that aren't saved. Grown children, adult children, who tell him, I'm not a Christian. I'm not saved, and that's not what I want. But you know what he does for them? He prays for them. And they know that. And he maintains the best relationship with them that he can. But guys, I'm just saying, if you're a minor, you're living at home with your parents, the fact that you're... Parents are Christian doesn't mean you're a Christian. The fact that you come to church, it doesn't make you a Christian. So kids, ask yourselves, do I have a relationship with Christ? Have I come to that point where I know who Jesus is for me? There's another group that I'm concerned about, and I just call them moralists. Moralists. This was not me, by the way. I had no temptations towards being a moralist. Moralists are drawn to rules keeping. And this is just a form of pride. But moralists are drawn to, I can keep those rules. And I can do it pretty well. I can clean up my act on the outside. I can do a pretty good job of it. And you know what? Those people that go to church, they're a lot like me. And you know what? In fact, I know that I'm better than some of the people I sit next to on Sunday morning. I know some of their dirt. I know what's going on in their life. And I'm better than them, but for sure... And so some people will go to church, they'll be like the, the Pharisee in the temple. Lord, I'm, thank you, I'm not like that guy or like her. You and me, we got it going. I'm okay, you're okay. We're more or less, I'm jumping through some hoops. Yeah, there have been a few mistakes along the way, but I'm okay, you're okay, we're good. And God says, no, you're not good. doesn't work that way. So, in all seriousness, when you're thinking today if you don't know absolutely if these things aren't true of you they should be because i can tell you god's will for your life is regeneration it's rebirth it's salvation let me close with this story this is out of out of daniel 5 i will make this short daniel 5 is a great story you know the kids know it because you remember what happens kids in daniel 5 there's some strange artwork going on Right, a hand comes out of a cup and it writes on the wall. And the king, you know, the, the scene is Belshazzar's the king and he's actually the regent king. Because his dad, this isn't in Daniel 5, but his dad, Nabonidus, has just been whooped up on by Cyrus the Mede. And his dad has taken off. And you know what? When you read Daniel 5, Belshazzar knows that Cyrus and his army are headed to Babylon. He knows. But he's in Babylon. Babylon the Great. The walls are so big, nobody can ever get to us. We've got fresh water, the Euphrates River. And guess what he'd done? He knows Cyrus is coming. He's brought in grain and corn enough to last for years. And so you know what he does? He's so confident. I've got it going. I know who I am. I've got all this stuff. Nobody can touch me in here. I throw a feast. And I bring the articles from the temple of God in Jerusalem out to make it a fitting time. And... And I take that gold ware and I celebrate. And I worship the gods of gold and silver and wood and stone. Because I got it going. And I'm trusting in my walls and my gates and my power and my stuff. And there's, but there's that strange thing about the hand. I don't get that. So, Daniel, could you tell me, what does that mean? And Daniel says, well, you've been weighed, you're wanting, and your reign's over. 
Daniel tells him, you'll be dead tonight. And Cyrus the Mede, he was no fool. He'd done this before. He diverts the Euphrates River. That was a task. He diverts the water. And his soldiers go in under those portcullises through the riverbed. They come up and he's dead that night. Now guys, this is the thing. He looked at what he could do. He looked at what was around him and he said, I'm good to go. He was, his trust was a fool's trust. There was a guy outside his wall smarter than him. If you and I are trusting in anything but Jesus Christ for our salvation, it's a fool's trust. Don't do it. Give it up. Cast yourself at God's feet. Cry out for His mercy in Christ and He'll give it to you. Don't be like Belshazzar. Don't put your trust in anything you can lay your hand on. Put your trust in what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. God's will for your life absolutely is regeneration. He doesn't desire the death of any. He does not desire the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from their sins and would live. Would live. Father, thank You for sending Your Son Jesus to do what we could not do. Provide our redemption. God, we are paupers spiritually. God, we are loathsome to You because of our sin. There's nothing good in us. Lord, there's nothing good about us in the eyes of a holy and righteous God. And we thank You that You in love and mercy have sent Your Son Jesus to die for our sins. And Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know You that Your Spirit is bringing about that process of rebirth even now. That conviction is followed by illumination and the gift of faith, and that they trust Your Son Jesus for eternal life, that they become one of Your children even today, Father. We, we cast ourselves with reckless abandon on the salvation You've provided in Jesus. Amen.